What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Software Radio, Software Radio on time, on target. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrieri. Joining me, we have a co-host, which is always nice to have. It's always nice to have some support here. Sean Spoon from SoftRep, our uh, new editor-in-chief, is uh, joining us today. And we're going to be talking very shortly with uh, somebody that we've talked to in the past. Dennis Blasco is a retired lieutenant colonel out of the U.S. Army with just under, I believe, 25 years service as a military intelligence officer and a foreign area officer. He specialized in China, which we're going to be talking about today. 
He served in infantry units in Germany, Italy, and Korea, as well as D.C. at the DIA headquarters and the Army Office of Special Operations. From 92 to 96, he was the Army attache in Beijing and Hong Kong. So uh, Dennis is a, our subject matter expert when it comes to talking about China and uh, Chinese, I guess, uh, influences that are going on right now. And we're going to be talking about China and Taiwan specifically. But before we do that, I just need to read you guys an ad from one of our sponsors. Hey again, everybody. Steve Balistrieri here. I want you to know about this new app. It's called the How We Reach Coaching Tool. Download it and learn how to reach out to friends that are going through a hard time. And as we all know, there's, uh, you know, way too many soldier suicides going on and in the military. And that's what this is all about. Thanks to the app, you can get helpful in- information on how to talk to friends who are struggling and can help them find the help that they deserve because we all need help and support sometimes. Go to reach.gov, that's reach.gov, to learn the steps everyone can take to prevent suicide. Check out the How We Reach coaching tool today and download it. And please reach out to your friends who might be suffering right now. With that being said, let's get to our guest right now. Sean and I would like to welcome Dennis Blasco back to the SoftRep.com podcast. And uh, Dennis, once again, thanks for taking the time this afternoon. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Let's talk some Chinese. Well, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in the news, and we hear about it all the time, about, you know, the Chinese acting very aggressive toward the Taiwanese and the it seems to be increasing. Um, you know, we, we hear about incursions in their airspace, you know, every day, it seems like. So uh, what's your take on this whole Taiwanese, you know, Chinese, uh, you know, uh, situation? Is the Chinese soldiers actually preparing to invade there or is this just posturing? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question, and so we should probably do it one step at a time. Uh, But let's talk first about the the Chinese actual, uh, at least their stated uh, preferences and national strategy. Uh, And indeed, uh, reunification with Taiwan is probably at the very top of their uh, objectives uh, to achieve sometime in the future. Uh, There's been a lot of talk recently about uh, exactly when that time frame is uh, for achieving unification. But uh, in reality, that's There may be some signs on the wall someplace, but at least uh, openly, I'm not seeing them consistently say that there is a set date for us to achieve unification. And unification is looked at as one of the very important elements of what they call the rejuvenation 
of, of China, uh, making uh, China into one of the uh, large countries, top, top players in, in all uh, elements, uh, politically, diplomatically, uh, militarily, economically, mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, and, and generally that goal for that, that, that they have stated has been more toward mid-century or 2049, which would be the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China uh, in 1949. Uh, so, like I say, unification is a, a main goal. Uh -huh. But they would prefer to do it peacefully. They would prefer to uh, basically end the civil war uh, right. peacefully uh, because they they certainly could punish Taiwan right now or in any time into the future. But uh, they they would much rather have a. Uh, a non-hostile takeover. Unfortunately, the trends are not uh, looking good for that, but um, that officially is their, uh, their position. And militarily, their main uh, objective at this time is to deter, to be able to show uh, China's capability and willingness to use force to deter further steps toward uh, independence by Taiwan. So uh, deterrence is right now one of the main elements of everything that we're seeing the, the Chinese do. Sean? John, Bosco, welcome. I'm here, Mr. Bosco. Welcome to the show. It's very nice to, to have you with us again. It was nice to meet you at the uh, GSL Symposium uh, two weeks ago. Thank very you. Interesting, very interesting talk you gave. Uh, before we came on today, we were talking a little bit about uh, a recent news item about the Chinese army looking to uh, in increase the masculinity of their force. You had a very interesting observation about the changing demographic of the the Chinese uh, army uh, relative to their conscription service. I was wondering if you might share that with the audience. Right. Well, as you know, that uh, the Chinese army still uh, is a conscript army, uh, conscript military. And uh, I estimate a, a probably about a third of the two million active duty personnel uh, either volunteer or if they uh, don't volunteer, uh, they are conscripted to serve two years. Um, and part of the general trends in China over the past 40 years or so has been a move away from uh, the rural uh, farming uh, areas and moving into the big cities. And as the uh, population has moved into the cities and the economy has really taken off and uh, China has gotten richer. Um, many fewer people are working in the fields in, uh, in China uh, and a whole lot more are living 
the, the relatively, uh, and, and for most Chinese, uh, the good life in the cities. And one of the things that they, uh, actually we've seen them complain about this for literally the past 20 years or more, was that uh, more and more of their new recruits, whether they volunteer or whether they're conscripted uh, involuntarily, uh, just aren't the same sturdy, hardy folk that they, they used to have that came out of the, the fields in rural China for the first, you know, uh, well, for almost all of the last century uh, in the 1900s. Uh, so what they're seeing is uh, as uh, China has gotten richer, uh, in many cases, the uh, younger people have gotten sort of fat and happy and aren't accustomed to hardships in the same way that uh, the old rural youth uh, used to be. And so uh, I think a lot of the discussion right now is just a continuation of this trend that sort of uh, is seen uh, a lot more Chinese uh, youth being disqualified for not being able to do the proper amount of push-ups, for having bad eyesight, uh, mm. being too fat, uh, mm. big problem. Sounds, sounds familiar. Yeah, you know, and, <laughs> well, and, and, and uh, honestly, it, it, they've, changed. they've changed the standards over the years. They've allowed, uh, shall we say, larger people to come on active duty. Um, but then, you know, they they put them through the ringer in uh, basic training and, uh, you know, they end up having to, to run run their three kilometers, five kilometers, do their sit ups, push ups, whatever. And uh, the last statistic I saw was several, well, maybe a decade or so ago, but they talked to like about 15 percent dropping out during basic training. I wouldn't be surprised if that's even higher now. Mm. So, um, you know, when that's you have a high amount. Yeah. And, and number one, when you are already recruiting every year, you have to bring in one third of um, your recruits. Every, every, one third of your force is um, conscripts. That means half of one third or 18%, 20% uh, of 2 million is what 500,000 or so that's yep. a lot of folks you've got to recruit uh so uh they uh they have a, a large population obviously uh but uh again this all it, it also relates back to the one child policy uh that families only had one were allowed to have one child uh, so there's uh, fewer of them for one thing. And then uh, one of the things that we used to see them constantly talking about was because they were one child and they had two parents and oftentimes four grandparents, they were doted on. And so, again, you know, they were given candies and soft drinks and whatever. And, you know, that many folks consider them to be, you know, to be soft. 
So uh, coming into the military is a big change for a lot of these folks. Mm. And, um, you know, they, they really have to uh, work the way up to uh, meet the minimal uh, military requirements. It sounds like a it sounds like a significant it's going to be a significant problem in China because they have a I think something like seventy million surplus males in that country, um, you know, exceeding the population of females. There's a seventy million person imbalance there in favor of uh, the male population. So for them to have problems that are showing up, being able to to conscript people who meet the the sort of physical requirements they want to see for their military, it sounds like it's a a significant problem. I'd like to ask a follow-up on that and ask if you have any view on how the are the Taiwanese having problems like this too. How would you put the Taiwanese soldier up against the Chinese soldier in terms of comparison of fighting ability and that sort of thing? Oh well, again, I don't follow Taiwan, uh, okay. but uh, from what I have heard, uh, Taiwan number one, I believe, also has. Uh, sort of a, a draft or conscription, but I believe they're only conscripted for like four months or something. Right. And so wow. it's a very short period of time. Uh, perhaps more people cycle through um, or a, a larger percentage of the younger population cycles through the military. But, um, you know, whatever period of time they're in is uh, hardly sufficient to uh, really move up the uh, professional uh, chain to to, sure. to 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 be able to do something more than put your uniform on, so know when to salute, and know how to, you know, shoot a twenty meter target. So kind of like the kind of like the Swiss conscription system. I'm very every, try to make everybody into a reservist and have sort of basic military yeah. training. It might be a little bit different than that, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, in uh, I don't know what the 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 Taiwan the, the policy on Taiwan for having guns in your house is, but that I think is a major component of the Swiss uh, militia. You know, yeah. has their weapons in the house. I don't think that's the case in no. in Taiwan. And and literally one of the major questions uh, about the whole China Taiwan. Uh, military balance situation is the willingness of the Taiwan people to resist and uh, how willing are they to to fight and to en endure the hardships that will certainly come if uh, if if an actual war started and I think again my personal analysis is that uh, the PLA and China would prefer not to have that war fought because it would lay waste to a large part of uh, Taiwan. Either way, win, lose, or draw, uh, a lot of Taiwan would be uh, would be very severely damaged. And uh, they want to take it all in one piece, right. huh? I'm sorry. I said they'd like to take it all in one piece, wouldn't they? Well, they would prefer, yeah, much. They they would much prefer to be able to maintain, uh, number one, the economic 
you know, there's a, a huge flow economically back and forth between uh, Taiwan and the mainland. And uh, both sides are economic, uh, do a lot of trading and, and do, and in many ways dependent on the other. Uh, so if you, you know, break the economic back of Taiwan, which would be one way to uh, move toward unification, you then have to rebuild Taiwan, and uh, that doesn't sound like an attractive uh, option for them uh, if they could achieve their goals without having to destroy or, you know, literally kill the golden goose. Well, I wonder about that, too, because um, I'd like to know what you think about the uh, comparison between the People's Liberation Army and the People, People's Liberation Army Navy Arm, whether you think there's a difference in the quality of the, of the personnel between those two branches of the service. And looking at China's development of a 600-ship Navy, I, I wonder if they couldn't find a, um, an in-between on invading Taiwan and instead have a Navy big enough to enforce a blockade that would compel them to surrender. I wonder, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. Uh, well, the Navy actually is uh, different than the, uh, than the army in that uh, the, the Navy has a much larger percentage of NCOs. And in fact, the Navy itself says that it, the 50% of, of its personnel are NCOs, which means that conscripts are much fewer in the Navy, a much smaller percentage. And on the frontline ships and submarines, uh, they say that their NCOs uh, comprise roughly 70% of the crew. So what that means is compared to, say, the infantry um, or some rocket forces or artillery or whatever, uh, which have a, uh, could have 50% of their uh, unit as conscripts. The Navy has many, uh, a much smaller percentage of conscripts. So it, could main, it can maintain a higher level of operational readiness and actually be out at sea uh, with its uh, officers and NCOs and fewer conscripts much more uh, often than um, most ground units can be out there training uh, because right. ground units are basically trying to get their conscripts uh, ready to take part as part of the the squad platoon battalion whatever whereas the ships uh, can maintain a higher level of readiness than their uh, their brothers in arms on the ground. And you see that not only in ships, but also in uh, the PLA aviation, uh, air, both Air Force aviation units and uh, Naval aviation units, which have higher percentages of officers and NCOs, which then again means that uh, those units can, can train more often reach higher levels of uh, unit readiness and, uh, and do things like they've been doing for the past several years, uh, flying around Taiwan, uh, 
you know, sailing around Taiwan and, and various other places, uh, they can do that because they are less dependent on the conscripts. Does it remind you of the Soviet Union's naval model? That that sounds similar to me. They they had a very high percentage of NCOs that sort of formed the core of the Navy, and then they were bringing in the conscripts to do, you know, the chipping and the painting and the cleaning. Is it does it strike you as being similar? Uh, in many ways, I look at uh, the two years the conscripts spend on on active duty as basically an apprenticeship, and uh, if they prove that they <laughs> are fit enough, smart enough, have the political, um, the right political thinking, uh, then they can be asked to stay and become an NCO or maybe even go to an officer school. Uh, so uh, in the Navy, uh, I think they are, Navy and Air Force both are able to maintain those higher levels of operations. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're also they've also been getting uh, large numbers of uh, new equipment, more advanced equipment. So much of the Navy and Air Force's time uh, has been spent integrating the new equipment into units and uh, obtaining unit proficiencies, whether in the air or at sea. And a lot of what we're seeing, uh, in my opinion, while it can be used to send a message to Taiwan and the United States, or Japan, or uh, other countries along the uh, South China Sea, a lot of what we are seeing is uh, routine training, which is then uh, publicized and propagandized for both internal and external consumption. And so uh, it's very important to look at what what all this training that that uh, gets noticed uh, and publicized, and see what is actually being done in that training. It's a very uh, good question. Steve and I were talking about that last night on the phone, um, and Steve pointed out to me that uh, approximately twenty percent of their training day is taken up by political indoctrination. I was wondering if you know if that is correct. And what is their typical training day like? Is it a 10 hour, 12 hour, or eight hour? Um, that's, a, that's a day of a week in a typical service members, you know, uh, day in the United States on an eight hour shift doing two hours of, uh, two hours of political indoctrination a day. I was wondering what you're thinking about that. Right, the uh, actual regulations call for 20 to 30% of a unit's training time to be uh, devoted to uh, political and uh, ideological training. And uh, many years ago, I asked uh, an officer, well, which units have 20% and which units have 30%? And uh, the answer I got, and you know, this is a uh, just one, <laughs> it's one data point. He said, it's more likely uh, that the more advanced units would would spend 20% of time training while the uh, units that would have to spend more time in maintenance, shall we say, older equipment might spend more time. Uh, but yes, whether it's 20 or 30%, it's still a lot of time uh, spent 
uh, reading newspapers, uh, singing songs, watching uh, television, you know, uh, making sure that the people are, uh, are understand what the, the history of the party, their responsibility of the party, and, uh, and are loyal. Uh, what they're doing in that period of time is trying to improve morale so much that uh, they can depend on the soldiers, officers, NCOs, and conscripts to, to follow orders uh, when, when called upon. So uh, we may, uh, and, and that this 20 to 30% doesn't mean, you know, it has to all happen on one, one full day, uh, but there can be uh, political training during downtime between uh, doing tables on a firing range or something. Uh, and, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it's singing, dancing, things like that. So it, it, in some ways, it's, uh, it's sort of rest and relaxation, uh, making sure you're a good communist along the way. <laughs> Well, but you know, I don't. I don't remember the last time anything about any. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying. From you know, I think any battalion or brigade commander that I ever worked for would be very upset if uh, he were told to to spend twenty percent of his time doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, imagine. I, well, I don't remember the last time I heard anything about any defection from. The Chinese military, so I, I guess it's effective. I guess they're they're doing pretty good at keeping their people in line. Do you have any information on that? Whether there's a, a problem with defection or desertions within the Chinese military? Uh, yeah. Well, the, just recently, uh, a couple months ago, there were there was a report. I forget whether it was one person or several persons who had been conscripted, but then basically refused to do anything. <laughs> Uh, and uh, takes courage. <laughs> yeah, and basically he was put on trial, or they were put on trial, and uh, kicked out of the military. Uh, they could not work for the government. They could not get any benefits. Uh, they could not travel. Uh, it it really sort of uh, limited their options, shall we say? Uh, but as for desertions, I know of one. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, but I haven't seen much of that lately. We're, we're talking with Dennis Blasco here on Software Radio. We're talking about Chinese military uh, and possible, you know, confrontation with Taiwan. But before we go any further, I just wanted to read a quick ad from one of our sponsors once again. Check out our how We Reach Coaching Tool. It's a free app you can download at rech.gov. That's rech.gov. You'll find steps everyone can take to prevent suicide. Reach for support. Reach to those who need help and download the How We Reach app at reh.gov. That's reh.gov today. Thank you. Dennis, uh, getting back to this, I wanted to kind of turn the clock back. The last time we spoke, you know, we talked about this Chinese military and right now, you know, it's uh, obviously with the amount of people they have and the, the modernization of their air force and ships, they're, they're obviously a formidable adversary. 
but you know we also talked about that conscript army and you you touched on it earlier about you know a third of their force really turns over every year and i mean does that um does that turnover i i want to say i want to ask you does that turnover really affect how how well these units can be trained especially within the army yes absolutely uh i think well one thing that is different though than uh our military in addition to the con the whole conscription idea is that officers and ncos on the other hand will stay in the same unit for 10 12 years uh, so while the conscripts are turning over uh, every year uh, in large numbers, you do have a backbone of officers and NCOs who do learn to, to work together over, the, over that same period of time. But to me, much of what <laughs> they must feel like it's Groundhog Day because, you know, just as they get one batch of new recruits integrated into uh, their squad, platoon, or company, then another half of the conscripts demobilize and they go through the same cycle again. And so uh, every year, uh, in what I call, like I say, the conscript heavy units, uh, they are working to primarily to establish squad, platoon, company, and at best battalion proficiencies. And uh, this has especially been true uh, in the past four years since they've uh, totally revamped their organization in 2017. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. And uh, they went to a much more uh, combined arm structure than they had been before. And so in many units were completely 
changed. Uh, many personnel were told, well, you used to be uh, artillery, you're now recon or you're now an engineer. Uh, and they, they, they had their MOS changed just overnight without any formal training. Uh, so a lot of these things have uh, had a major impact for the past four years. And it's only now that they're being, being beginning to come uh, to establish some of these uh, proficiencies at battalion level and uh, beginning to do larger exercises. Um, the, the, the number of large exercises that went on prior to the, um, the reforms uh, numbered in the dozens every year uh, for several years. But after reforms, that, the, that number dropped down to single digits. But now I'm expecting that number of larger exercises to start uh, increasing again uh, as the new units have learned how to establish their new proficiencies as required under their uh, new organization, new doctrine, and oftentimes with new equipment. Yeah, Dennis, I, I wanted to ask you about something, in, and again, this goes back to what we talked about, uh, you know, before, and that's, uh, you know, the the Chinese really haven't had a uh, any kind of uh, military, I guess, combat experience since that brief uh, foray into Vietnam. I, I believe it was either 1979 or 1980. 79. Um, 79 it was. Okay, yeah. And the... the the uh, the Chinese themselves talk about what they call peace disease for their military. Is this something that they are, are really concerned about? And are they going to try to uh, rectify that somewhere soon? No, they, they certainly are. Uh, again, I just read an article two days ago that talked about uh, that exact problem. Uh, and they, and it was with regard to their, uh, university uh, curriculum uh, basically what they what the battalion commanders are telling the uh, university the PLA uni uh, academies is that you're not training us for for our new jobs and uh, you know we we're in this new organization but the curriculum is like it was before we 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 reorganized mm -hmm. so uh right now they are trying to to change those curriculum the curricula and uh better educate and train their officers and ncos to do these things and especially in the army they're looking at doing it now at battalion level when previously the regiment was the level that did uh, independent operations. But now they're trying to push that down onto battalions. And it's only been within the past few years or so that uh, they've even given battalion commanders a staff. Uh -huh. That staff is maybe five or six full-time people, uh, which is, I'd say, pretty light for 
if, if you're going to try to do 24 seven uh, high intensity combined arms operation at, at battalion level. So I think eventually they're going to find that they need to get bigger staffs at battalion level uh, and better trained officers and, and NCOs to do this staff work. And again, I think this is one of the things that we have, uh, while we may, we, the United States military may not have fought a peer competitor anytime recently, our staffs have done this planning and adaptation uh, necessary on the battlefield in periods of high stress for extended uh, lengths of time. And I, I look at that as, as one of our asymmetric advantages. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I read recently is that, you know, the PLA in their, you know, uh, I guess modernization, um, you know, programs that they're running, they're adopting, I guess, and they're being heavily influenced by Russian doctrine and with force structure and equipment and stuff like this. Is that something that uh, you believe in or, or is it, uh, are they going to their own? Well, they study, they studied us. They study the Russians. They study anybody that uh, has had recent combat experience. Uh, but they, they have a very close relationship, which we are encouraging. Again, this is not something I think we should be doing, but uh the the way that we're lumping Russia and China together sort of encourages them to uh, to cooperate more. And um, <clears throat> the, the Russians have trained a lot with the Chinese. They've probably been, well, they certainly have been their single uh, most frequent uh, foreign training partner. And the Russians uh, are indeed trying to help the, the PLA learn some of these basics that they have learned through combat in, you know, various places over, over the years. Um, so, and, and the Chinese do uh, send their officers to uh, Russian academies uh, to, to, to learn, uh, to, to go to school. Um, but the bottom line is, even though they study us, they study the Russians, they study the Israelis, they, like I say, they study the Brits, you name it, they're studying them all. They constantly talk about doing things their way, or they, they talk about modernization with Chinese characteristics. And they realize that every one of these other systems is different than theirs and has different constraints, <clears throat> different constraints than they do. So uh, what, what they learn from these other countries, they then adapt to their situation. John? Excuse me. Um, there's a... Something you said kind of interesting. I was listening when you were talking about the long-term service of their NCOs in these regiments. It, would, it seems to me like that would almost lead to a sort of clickishness, wouldn't it? Where you have these guys that have been with the with the unit for 10, 12 years, and you have these conscripts coming in. Um, 
Do you think it? Do you think at least that sort of environment within those units where you have the us and them kind of mentality? Um, well, actually, they at least from what you see on the videos of them uh, greeting the new uh, soldiers, the new recruits, they they really are going out of their way to to welcome them into uh, into the unit, and they talk about. Uh, the new recruits look at their squad leader as their friend, uh, things like that. So they, they are really trying hard to um, to, inter- to 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 welcome uh, the new recruits in, which is quite a difference from the way the Russians uh, and the Soviets used to treat their uh, conscripts. You know, I I remember reading reports of. <laughs> The Russians or the Soviets beating NCOs, beating the conscripts with uh, fence posts and things like that. Uh, I don't see much of that. I don't see any of that in the PLA. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a contrast in between we the way we welcome people into boot camp in this country. <laughs> I, just getting off the bus at Paris Island is a is an ordeal in itself. So that's, a, it, that's an interesting one. Literally in, in the PLA, from what you see is uh, they open that welcome them with open arms and it's uh it's shall i say a much different uh induction than than i went through 50 some years ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I remember my first morning at great lakes illinois we were awakened by a garbage can being kicked down the squad bay and guys tossing us out of our racks onto the floor i, I didn't feel welcome i can recall yeah. it wasn't a welcoming experience yeah, well, well, these guys will do a lot of sit-ups in in mud and uh, with logs on their chest and things like that. <laughs> so you know they they get back at it in a different way. What uh, what would you have to tell me? Tell us about um, the difference in quality in Chinese armored fighting vehicles, uh, tanks, and APCs. Um, I can recall from the first Gulf War pictures of Chinese built tanks for the Iraqis that had sometimes M1 Abrams were shooting through two of them at a time. And um, I, I, as I recall, there was some talk about the Chinese selling stuff to the Iraqis that had thinned out armor in them, that they weren't actual full main battle tanks. They were had half the armor plate in them that a, that a normal T-52 or T-62. Um, do, you, do you think the quality of their weapons has improved a, a great deal, significant amount? Yeah, it, it certainly has improved, and this takes me back what you said to when I was in Beijing. I had a Marine colleague who uh, I was there just after the first Gulf, or yeah, the first Gulf War, and he basically uh, cleaned up the battlefield after the um, after the ninety ninety one battles, and we were at a um, you know, cocktail party or something. And there was somebody from the Chinese defense industries uh, there. And uh, my colonel buddy said, uh, mentioned that he had just come back from from the war. And the um, the Chinese said, ah, so you saw a lot of uh, our equipment on the battlefield what did you think about it and like a good like a good marine he said 
it burned real good. <laughs> and, and the guy, yeah. the Chinese rep didn't say anything after that. He sort of walked away. But, yeah, I wonder if they sell that stuff with a warranty. Yeah, but uh, over the years, that, that, that stuff was, um, again, Soviet era. Um, and it was what the Iraqis were buying high-end Soviet stuff and low-end Chinese stuff. And I was in Korea at the time in the second ID. And uh, again, we got the same reports as you did because uh, we were wondering, hey, is, is the M1, uh, how is it going to do on the battlefield? How's the Abrams going to do on the battlefield? Well, they both ate, ate up the Soviet era equipment. Uh, and the Chinese, that was a, as we would say, a significant emotional experience for the Chinese watching the uh, success of the high technology uh, advanced forces of the United States and coalition forces in that period in 1991, both air and ground. And it, uh, they, they did a couple double takes and they said, okay, now guys, as much as we hate to do it, we're gonna have to go in all in, all in on this equipment. And uh, that's one of the things they've been doing since that time is uh, really focusing on modernizing uh, their equipment in all services. And the army is probably behind the other services, uh, but right now I'd estimate they're probably in the army about one third of the APCs and tanks still maybe a little less now, uh, it, it changes every year, but still a significant amount is Soviet era, like the BMPs uh, type, uh, type literally type 55s, you know, T-55s that the, oh, the wow. Soviets oh, wow. use. They call them type 59s, but there are still hundreds of them in, in the PLA, many of them out west, uh, but some of them spread out, uh, some of them upgraded slightly. But uh, you, you hear talk, that in fact, they have talked about, the Chinese have set the date of 2035 to uh, modernize uh, personnel, equipment, organization, and doctrine, and I estimate, uh, I take that to mean by 2035, they plan on getting rid of all the um, Soviet era pre-2000 designed and produced equipment in their inventory and uh, produce and, and replace it by uh, more modern, more advanced equipment, but still, their army is uh, nearly a million person strong, so uh, they've got they, they they've got a lot of equipment to replace, and that's can they afford it? It's taking so much time. Yeah, can they afford it? Do they have the money to do it? Well, uh, for example, their top of the line tank, the Type uh, ninety nine probably costs or they're they're selling it overseas or an export version of it for four to five million dollars a copy and that's I think, cheap yeah that's cheap. Our, our m1 
is probably more like eight or more million uh, a copy and you get what you pay for. Uh, but their type 99 is not the most prevalent tank. The most prevalent tank in their inventory is the type 96 series, uh, which in many ways looks like the 99, but uh, doesn't have all the bells and whistles and costs about a million dollars uh, to produce as opposed to three or four million dollars. And uh, but with it, you know, you get a step down in uh, capability. But the, the type 96 is what you'll see uh, in, in, in many, many units. It, and and they, they, they acknowledge the type 96 is going to be the backbone ta tank uh, of their force, not the 99. How many that, live that, rounds do you, how many live rounds do you figure a, a Japanese, I mean, a Chinese uh, soldier in the PLA gets to fire in a year? Uh, again, that's hard to say. You uh, hmm. show you uh, tanks firing on uh, tank lanes, tank ranges almost every day. Uh, but <laughs> because they have so many tank platoons, companies uh, out there, you know, you can always find somebody doing um, a target, you know, live fire uh, shooting. So um, tank tables, I think we used to call it. Um, so well, and the, and, and, it's, they, the communist, and it's the communists, you know. So they could be the same tank shooting every day. It, it is the communists. They're not known for telling the truth because it'd be the same <laughs> tank outfit out there for two weeks shooting and for the yeah. cameras and stuff. Well, I there are ways we can tell that at least it's different units uh, doing this training. Uh, you know, I, I monitor it close enough so I can tell which, you know, right now, I'm, just this morning, I was watching a, uh, a unit that has been reported out in the field now for about three weeks and, and doing this kind of stuff. But, you know, it would have this, this brigade that I'm talking about would have four battalions, four combined arms battalions. And so over a period of three weeks, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, they rotate all the companies through uh, this basic, you know, tank gunnery kind of thing. Uh, but then there are uh, some 40 armor, heavy armored uh, or heavy combined arms brigades. So 40 times 40 uh, battalions, you know, that, that, that's a lot of battalions to run through <laughs> and a lot of tanks to run through gunnery every year. <laughs> Well, three weeks is a significant amount of deployment time for that kind of work too. That's 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 not a small, you know, weekend warrior kind of thing. Three weeks is is and that's that's significant in terms of training. Yeah, well, these are these are their active duty forces. This is not the reserves. This is not the militia. These are you know their uh, what they consider their number one heavy units. Yeah, they're they're out. They're, they're spending time in the field now. Yeah. But a lot of it, like I say, is still focused on integrating. At this point of the year, they're integrating the new uh, soldiers into their units. Well, I, I wanted to, uh, again, talk to you a little bit about Chinese special operations units. And, and when you and I talked before, and then you mentioned it when Sean and I saw you, um, 
at the uh, Global Soft uh, Foundation Symposium. The Chinese uh, Special Operations Forces, you said, are a lot like similar to Ranger units in particular to their mission. And, you know, I, I look at the kind of trend that's going on you see in, in, in several areas of the world, one of which where, you know, where China is involved in with their only uh, military base outside of China in Africa. The trend seems to be, you know, a war by proxy. And that doesn't seem like these type of special operations units are ready for that kind of, you know, atmosphere. Do you have any inkling on if they're uh, capable of doing anything like that? Um, the focus of the vast majority of their special operations uh, brigades, which are then broken down into battalions and then companies and then teams, um, is much more at the tactical ranger type patrolling uh, mm -hmm. Reich kinds of uh, missions, reconnaissance, things like that. And all of their uh, SOF are belong to uh, army level or core level, core level organizations. Um, their SOF, at least in all the doctrine I've read, do not have a mission in the same way that our special forces, our special operations forces uh, do of uh, foreign internal defense or unconventional warfare, where they might go behind somebody's lines and set up guerrilla ch chains and things like that. Um, if anything, what these guys are training to do is to combat that kind of stuff in their backyard. Um, but uh, in my opinion, uh, I think their focus on light special operations forces and on some high mobility light infantry uh -huh. will prove useful for them probably much more than a, a, a tank heavy or a heavy combined arms brigade because that uh, heavy brigade is going to take a whole lot longer to get someplace uh, than, than some of these lighter units. And um, so I see their lighter units giving them options today that they didn't have in the past. Uh, now, certainly their SOF or their, their special operations units uh, as they're now uh, formed go out and they train. They train with Thai. They train, believe it or not, with uh, Indian and Pakistani forces. They, they do... They've had uh, exchanges with them where they, you know, basically exchange uh, teams or platoons or, you know, small units, and they do uh, training for a couple weeks. And so they're, they're, and their special operations personnel, many of them have gone to the Venezuelan hunter schools, have gone to... Uh, competitions in Jordan and many other places. So uh, they are aware of what other special operations forces are doing 
and uh, they, they are being exposed to some of, uh, of those exercises and, and training methods. But I think I, Chinese... I think I recall I think I recall um, the U.S. Marines and Chinese Marines holding some kind of um, exchange sometime. I, I think I've seen pictures of that. Yeah, well, yes, you've seen things like that, but our um, U.S. military contact is very uh, fenced by. Uh, by Congress and the National Defense Authorization Act. And there may be port calls and things where they teach each other how to tie knots. And uh, you may have seen a couple instances of uh, cooperation in uh, say anti-piracy kinds of uh, small uh, individual or sm small unit movement and things like that, because the Chinese are taking part in an anti-piracy um, mission in the Gulf of Aden. But anything that uh, improves their capability to uh, do advanced combined arms or joint operations is pretty much prescribed by, by law here in the United States. And most, most the vast majority of, of our contact of actual troops uh, has been on HADR, uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief kind of uh, cooperation and training. Uh, on their, uh, their anti-piracy stuff, um, do you assess them to be pretty effective at that? Or are they just sort of going out there and sailing around? Are they, are they good at it or are they mediocre or are they competent? Well, this is an important mission for their Navy. And uh, they've been doing this since the end. They, they sent their first uh, three ship task force uh, halfway around the world uh, at the end of 2008. And they have basically kept three ships on station um, since that time, they're now, I think, into their 37th rotation in. So this is very important for them. Uh, so far, about half of their destroyer fleet and uh, frigate fleet has rotated through at least one iteration of this mission. But uh, this is important to them because the vast majority of their operations are conducted in within a few hundred miles of China's coast. And uh, these are extended operations far away uh, from China, uh, which the PLA, this is their, their longest kind of uh, similar experience. And what they're doing is they're gradually rotating their units through so that they're both their uh, officers and crew um, have the opportunity to do this. And like I say, right now uh, of their destroyers, probably somewhat less than 50% of their destroyers and about half of their frigates have done it once. Uh, many of them have done it two or three times and many officers have 
uh, and NCOs have done it two or three times also. But still, compared to the amount of uh, blue water uh, sailing and training and uh, exercising that our Navy does, uh, their, their numbers are, are much lower uh, than, than ours. Their experience level at this kind of operation is uh, much lower than ours. You know, for example, uh, what they're looking at is protecting against uh, surface small pirate boats. And so they've got a couple helicopters that they can patrol and they, you know, can dispatch things. But um, I'm, I'm assuming that they would also be maintaining anti-submarine awareness out at sea, even though the, the, pilot, uh, the, the pirates don't have submarines. But uh, I would think that if they are maintaining their air awareness, uh, air defense awareness and anti-submarine warfare awareness, even if there aren't any targets out there, uh, they're getting experience in that. But that's still a different level of experience than what our uh, Navy has been doing for the past 70 years or more. Do you, uh, do you, do you assess their ASW capability to be um, of, any, you know, of any value? Are they any good at it in your context? Well, there, any feedback on that? It's only in the past few years uh, that they've really started working on uh, air surface and subsurface ASW. Uh, they, their ASW uh, helicopter fleet is relatively limited. Uh, they do have their, their, many of the missions right now around, that are going around Taiwan are the uh, fixed wing ASW. Uh, so they, they've been, they have long recognized ASW as a shortcoming and they're working to overcome it. But uh, I'm not a sailor, but uh, the sailors that I know say that it, it ain't easy, and you need a no, lot. No, no, it's, yeah, it's very hard, and you need that. You need sort of an institutional memory in, yes. in order to really do it. So, right. if they're pretty much uh, with their, and that's usually the kind of technology that that um, allies don't like to share with one another. I mean, the United States, to my knowledge, doesn't share any sort of warfare technology with NATO. So I'm wondering if the Chinese are having to do this on their own, um, or if they're getting, you know, cooperative sort of help from the uh, from the Russians. Do you, do you have any, any yeah. sense on that? Well, uh, a large part of their anti-submarine warfare helicopter fleet are Russian, are Russian birds. So yeah, I'm sure they're they're getting uh, getting help in that regard from from the Russians. Well, Dennis, okay, yeah, I, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, uh, please tell our readers uh, what you're working on, uh, where they can find your, your great work, and uh, what's going on with you in the next, I'd say, few months. <laughs> um, well, uh, actually, I'm working on a project that uh, will be sort of an introduction to the Chinese Armed Forces. It'll be an e-book and, like, six or seven hours worth of uh, presentation, but fortunately it won't be my voice. <laughs> uh, and they're, you know, uh, talking through the PowerPoints and all that kind of stuff. 
so that's what I've been working on for the past about eight months. Uh, unfortunately, it might be pricier, you know, be, might be pricier than I would want to pay, but I'll let you know when it's uh, finally available. <laughs> uh, you know, people complained when my book was $40. This, unfortunately, will be more than that, but, you know, that's the business end of things. I don't, I just provide the content. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, I am not a businessman. Yeah. Well, that that rings for all of us there. But before we go, I just wanted to once again read something for our listeners out there. If you want to get SoftRep on your phone, download our free mobile app and get easy access to our articles, podcasts, gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to SoftRep.com to get access to our library of eBooks, hopefully to include Dennis's soon, uh, and our. Uh, Exclusive team room forums and content available on all our Apple and Android devices. Uh, Dennis, thanks for taking the time today. Uh, we really appreciate it. We appreciate your insight. And uh, thanks again. Uh, let's, uh, let's get back and do this again real soon. Well, you've got my number anytime. Absolutely. All right. For myself, Steve Balistrieri, Sean Spoons, from us at SoftRev, we want to thank our guest today, Dennis Blasco. Uh, U.S. Army retired. Uh, our, I, I call him our resident Chinese expert because uh, whenever we have a question on China, we first guy we email is Dennis. So uh, for all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll be back with another podcast real soon. Software Radio on time, on target. Don't turn that down. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.